0: What we don't need is more sustainable Doritos. We need total transformative solutions. And this is a mechanism that I think can do that. And that's why I'm running in this direction because we need to do it.
1: Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands. From developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. All right, welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I'm really happy to have Anthony Carsoro with me today, who is the CEO of Outlaw Ventures. So happy to have you. Welcome to the podcast.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here with you, Christy.
1: Yeah, so why don't you tell us a little bit? I mean, the name's so cool. So of course, everyone's going to want to know what is Outlaw Ventures all about. So talk about the company. Talk about the name. I want to hear everything.
0: Yeah, yeah. And there's kind of an ecosystem of context to build around it. So I'll start by, I guess, sharing a little bit of my personal story that ties into kind of the origin and, and the branding and the name, or where all that came from. So I was raised in a large fresh produce family distribution business in the Midwest. So told myself I was never going to be a part of that business, actually ended up eating those words as a young adult and working there after we had exited the majority share of the business to private equity. And so had always been in the food business and around food. And that experience mixed with an autoimmune disease that I've had was really a transformative experience in my kind of young adult life. And so that's what led me to working on food systems change, regenerative agriculture. And I started to see that we we needed to do things a little bit differently, and that was kind of the first seedling for Outlaw Ventures. And really, the ethos for Outlaw Ventures comes from my mother, who's my greatest inspiration as an investor. I've learned for so many years from her how to be a, a true value add advisor and investor to people, and she was really a, a champion of various different kind of angel investments through her career. And what I wanted to do was recreate that, but in the food and agricultural space, and so. I really went on a personal learning journey, figuring out what does that look like in regenerative agriculture, and I invested across many different asset classes at the early stage, so food distribution, apparel, CPG, ag tech, investing in some other venture funds, and really where I ended up was I love the CPG brands, and I really thought that they were an underappreciated crew within the regenerative agriculture movement. And I loved brands, I love branding, I loved kind of the impact that I thought that those folks could make with inspiring consumer change. And so Outlaw Ventures was really from this whole outlaw persona that my mom personified coming up in the 80s and 90s, where it really wasn't typical for women to be a part of a lot of those conversations. And she was a real trailblazer and really unapologetic about creating a seat at the table.
1: I think that's cool. And it's still true to a large mm-hmm. degree, by the way. So she was a real pioneer, like in the 80s and 90s. That's like serious pioneering. Yep.
0: Yep. And it's kind of a mixture of a a tip of the cap to her. And then the imagery used in a lot of the branding is the early Western cowgirls of the West, which Mm -hmm. was a really cool kind of image to tie in. And so we've kind of evolved from an angel slash family office portfolio into now, today, posting a role to hopefully launch a venture fund that is focused on seed stage, early stage investments into regenerative CPG brands.
1: So can you talk? I mean, what you're doing is amazing. I'm curious about the connection you were making between, did you say an autoimmune something that mm-hmm. you had autoimmune and disease. regenerative? So how do those two things connect? Because if you would have said autoimmune and then told me something like yeah, I don't know, gluten-free or whatever, I would be like, yes, that makes sense. What's the connection?
0: Yeah. I mean, the big connection for me there is regenerative agriculture produces the absolute most nutrient-dense healthy food that we can eat. And I learned that personally through my healing journey. And there was a big, you know, I had a mold and a stress component that was pretty big, but the other third component was food. And so food was the thing that I really solved first that got me on my way and created the momentum for me to solve the toxicity issues on the latter stages. And so I'm just very personally invested and I have proven through my own body that we need to produce more food like this. We all need to consume more food like this. So it's my mission to try and propel that work forward at a global scale.
1: So that's a big, big, giant, thing, right? <laughs> I mean, you're saying it, you're talking about it, like I'm going to just blah, blah, blah. And of course, we yeah. know, all we all know that's just massive and mm-hmm. different here than it is in other places. And we have bigger issues for whatever the reasons are, which we could talk about for days. But tell me when you say that, what's it going to take to get there?
0: Yeah, I think the first thing I did was I kind of made that declaration to myself in January of 2021. And to answer the question, what's it going to take? It's taken a two and a half year learning journey just to get to a point of deciding what to focus on, because there is this giant food and agricultural ecosystem. You can focus on land, you can focus on debt financing for farmers, you can focus on ag tech, you can focus on CPG brands and I found my niche in my home in that branded category because it was an underappreciated and under leveraged and underfunded group in the movement. And so I think you solve that big macro problem by each individual person bringing their unique skill set to a smaller micro problem. And then you stack those bricks up and then you got a nice house that solves the problem hopefully at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about starting the fund and what has it been like for you and how do you find brands that you're interested in? Like, What is all that about?
0: Yeah. So initially it was just me making angel investments. So the three core things that I was looking for were brands that had already eclipsed a million dollars in revenue, because I think CPG is a risky asset class, but they're massively de-risked once you kind of hit that seven figure mark. Mm -hmm. Two was the integrity of their regenerative supply chain. So were they certified and, or could they be extremely transparent about what their actual supply chain looked like? And then three, there's going to be a lot of great regional regenerative brands that probably don't scale nationally. But I think from a venture model, you need to invest in things that can scale nationally. So what are categories and items that can scale nationally? So things like chocolate, coffee, ice cream, things with really big TAMs and really big categories where we can go carve out a really nice niche for those region brands. And so that's what I've done personally. As far as the fun goes, it's really been socializing the idea with a ton of people getting a ton of feedback getting a ton of advice from a bunch of really smart more experienced people than myself and step 1 which i'm trying to do right now which is the most critical step is i got to find a partner because i really bring an amazing skill set on the qualitative side so the relationships the fundraising the due diligence the portfolio building the deal flow i need someone that can really take the lead on the math to take the lead on being that shrewd advisor or, or an investor that says no because i'm the hero that wants to tell everybody yes And I think you got to have the self-awareness to know, hey, what are you really good at? And what are you not so good at? And so step one right now is finding that person that's complementary to my skill set with their skill set.
1: Interesting. How are you going about that?
0: Really just kind of kicked it off the last couple of days. Traditional venture capital, I think, is, is a very private endeavor. It's kind of like a back channel conversation, kind of a space. And I take the opposite approach. If anyone that follows me on LinkedIn, you know, I post every day about all the things that I'm working on and that's how I want to build this thing is is very much in the public eye because we're not going to be shy about how we're trying to build it, what we're trying to build and what that's supposed to be in service to. And I think that's the best way to create transparency that results in accountability. So step one to finding that person was I put together a job description and I blasted it all over LinkedIn today. I'll send it around to a bunch of people via email and really just try and get the word out because... One of my greatest strengths is being a good networker. And so I'm trying to rely on on those things to kind of drive the results here. And I think hopefully it'll be successful.
1: That's cool. Tell me about number two on your list of how you evaluate brands, because I'm just wondering, like, is the universe of brands that are potential for you that are already getting the certifications? Is that big enough universe?
0: Yeah. So we have the Regen Brands podcast that I host with with I Kyle as well. Yeah. Yep and we are tracking over 115 brands now, not all of them are certified, but their regen integrity is enough for us to put them on that list of regen brands, right? And I really don't want to frame that as we're the judge and jury of who's regenerative enough or whatever. It's not like for that list, we're going into incredible depth of due diligence. It's really, hey, these people have made a claim and we think it's at least somewhat reputable. So they're on the Mm -hmm. list. And then there'll be a much more deeper due diligence in terms of looking at things from an investment standpoint beyond that.
1: So did you decide to go out and do this on your own? Are you doing this with anyone in your family who has sort of inspired you along the way? Or you just were like, this is what I'm doing. I'm totally compelled by it.
0: A little bit of both. My family's been super supportive. My parents have been amazing, supportive. Both my siblings have been amazing and supportive. So they'll be a part of it, whether that's financially or just through their cheerleading or whatever that that may be exactly how that looks TBD, but I stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, my, my grandpa was an orphan who started being a produce peddler and we've been in the the food industry for a hundred years. So it's in our blood. And I think where we've played in the food system has, has evolved over time, but it's always been about putting healthy, fresh, nutritious food on people's tables. And that's the ethos that will drive this thing. Just like it drove the produce company that we've built.
1: That's so amazing. Talk about your challenges. Like what's the biggest challenge Or a few, I mean, I'm sure there's more than one. So what are you faced with that makes you say, "Uh, this is going to be harder than I thought, or is it harder than you thought?
0: Yeah, I think the two biggest challenges will be fundraising and then fundraising fast enough to get the money deployed enough into the best deals that are available right now. And so we're in a very big period of macroeconomic scarcity and people are scared and people are being negative and we're we're worried about... uh, recession or depression coming. So private capital markets get dried up and they get much more hesitant. People hold on to their cash. We know that. I'm not immune to that. But I do think that we can put together a strategy that's really compelling, not only from a return perspective, but from an ESG slash impact perspective. And I think we have to remember this fund's going to be made up, hopefully, by a bunch of impact-minded family offices that Yes, they're trying to grow their wealth and maintain their wealth, but these are people that have largely already created the vast majority of that wealth. We yeah. just got to show them that this thing makes sense for profit for people and planet. And I think we can do that.
1: Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because every founder that I talk to on the CPG side is always talking about raising capital and getting mm-hmm. investors. And it's not the same for you, but it's the same, right? Like you mm-hmm. said, it, I was like, wait, that wasn't what I was expecting you to say at all. I was expecting you to say something else. So can you talk a little bit about that and, and maybe... Is it really different than it is for founders of CPG brands or is there, are there actually similarities?
0: Yeah, I think there's definitely some similarities. It is a different fundraise, right? And I think it dovetails mm-hmm. into what will be one of our future biggest challenges will be we're trying to invest at the seed stage. And right now the thesis looks like a CPG brands at $1 to $3 million in revenue. They've raised about that much from angel investors slash family offices, and they probably can't raise more from that bucket but they need to get to that $5 million kind of revenue mark to take that first institutional check. And so they will need to be capitalized so much more beyond the capital that we put in. And so being good advisors to them, creating a network of co-investors, creating a diverse array of capital sources beyond just venture for them through the life cycle of the company, that will be a huge key to de-risking and ensuring that those investments and those companies are successful.
1: When you say... De-risking, talk a little bit about that. What does that mean for you guys and how are you going to help people do that? And then when you talk about a group of advisors, who are those people? Do you have them identified yet? Or is that something you're you're sort of in the process of?
0: Yeah, shortlist identified, no formal agreements or anything of that nature. And I think whether we call them operating partners, whether we call them advisors. The exact details are probably still TBD, but that's the greatest way to de-risk these investments. And when you're at that seed stage, just trying to get to your first true institutional round, that playbook is not rocket science, right? The the Mm -hmm. complexity grows as the company grows. And so what those people really need help with, there's not some magic code that they need access to. They just need people that have paid the dummy tax to tell them the two or three things not to do that are absolutely wrong. And then they can figure it out from there. And so I think what we're gonna to wanna to do is just put together a really strong operating partner list that can be extremely value add and that's really aligned and has experience in better for you organic regenerative CPG brands.
1: Yep, yep. Are there other funds and companies out there like what you're trying to do right now?
0: Are you familiar with One Step Closer? They've been around the natural organic CPG yes. world for quite some time. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, very yeah. cool group. They've been around for I think 10 plus years I see them, they've kind of created this beautiful like CEO share group with the CEO of Alter Eco and Yaki and Rumi T and some others. Yeah. And they have a crew that's that's putting together a very similar venture fund, very similar thesis. And so just really excited to build alongside those folks and collaborate with them and hopefully co-invest with them. And I got to find somebody to do this thing with me. So who knows if it's even going to work out, but I know that the best way to do anything in life is to just start doing it and, mm-hmm. and learn along the way.
1: Yep. Yep. Who taught you that? I mean, some people there, I have had so many people on, there's so many philosophies. Some are figure every single thing out first before you do a thing, which I don't subscribe to because I think that Mm -hmm. gives you a million reasons to stop doing what you're doing and never figure it out. But Mm -hmm. how did you get to, is that like family things, training, your own?
0: I grew up with two kind of conflicting influences, right? Because in school, you're taught work really hard on it, make it perfect, turn it in. There's a right or wrong answer. Then you're going to get a letter grade, right? but I grew up in the fresh produce business where it's like, Hey, we just got these strawberries in and if we don't sell them in the next two days, they're going to go bad. And my dad had a saying in our business, if you can't sell it, you smell it. And so in that business, you don't have time to wait. And so I feel like there's been times in my life where I've been kind of skewed one way or the other, right. That kind of perfectionism, long timelines, or that just figured out as you go, short timelines, take action. And I definitely think when you're doing establish things that have a really clear rule book and mode operating procedure, you want to be more over here. But when you're trying to do new things that are entrepreneurial, that are hard, that are going to make waves, you got to just take a lot of action and do a lot of iterating. And I would definitely put this venture in that bucket.
1: So you started in, did you say 2021?
0: Started making some investments in, yeah, in January of 2021.
1: And now you've got a year-ish, no, you've got two years under your belt yep. of that. How are you feeling in general? Because I, when you said, I don't know, it'll work out or it won't, whatever, you said that was surprising a little bit. Like it sounds like, yeah.
0: I mean, doing the venture fund, right? So I'm going to continue to invest in this space myself and and our Mm -hmm. family is no matter what. And that's what we have done. And that portfolio is up to 20 investments. And so we came into the space. We did a lot of research. We talked to a lot of people. And one thing that was really important to me was that we walked the walk and not just talked the talk. You know, I was out there talking about regenerative ag, talking about investing in regenerative ag. And it's like, don't be the guy that has some money to deploy that's saying all that and then not writing any checks because one, it's hypocritical. And two, we don't have time to wait for that cash to sit on the sidelines. So two, you know, I think it's really just the venture fund. I'm going into it with a very clear mission and an intention. I'm not going into it with a, hard, dogmatic. It has to look like X, Y, Z. That will come together when the right people, the right models show themselves.
1: I mean, if the past few years has taught us anything, it's that that isn't going to work, right? That Everything changes all the time now faster than ever. So I think that's interesting. So you gave me a list of the criteria for the brands that you're interested in. What has to happen for the brands to be successful? So those are Facts, right? They need to be in your space and doing things and be certified. But what else matters? Founders, story. What else is there that you've seen happen with brands that you've either invested in or interested in that makes you think they're going to be successful or actually makes them successful or not?
0: Mm -hmm. I try and trifurcate this thing. Oh, I don't know.
1: I've never heard that.
0: All right. I don't even know if that's a word. I know bifurcate's a word, but I, I do it in threes, right? Okay. So you look at it. an investment, a business, and a team. And those three things all add up to it, but you have to evaluate them all individually. and here's what I mean by that is There's amazing teams and amazing businesses that might not be amazing investments for the venture capital model of scaling to a really high number and exiting you know at a really great multiple. Some of those businesses might need to be financed in multiple other ways. And I salute Elliot Began, who's doing a lot of trailblazing work in the CPG space of saying, hey, there's all these other alternative financial models and instruments we can use and I'm a huge fan of those I'm participating in some of those and not all companies are a fit for the venture model but I think when you look at any investment you have to trifurcate it and and you have to break it into those thirds which is what is the actual investment like what's the valuation what's the return what's the timeline all those hardcore investment things what does the team look like what's their skill set have they done this before do we think they have the grit the integrity the intelligence right and then the company and the business is okay what's going on in this category, what's going on with this brand, is there room, is this creating a new category, what are the challenges, what's the go-to-market look like, and really, you have to evaluate all three of those things individually, and then I think you have to throw the Venn diagram and say, is it making enough noise where those circles overlap?
1: Yeah, yeah. Do you feel like it's different now than you would have thought, like, because of the economic climate and because of post-COVID, you know, COVID was tough, nobody was writing checks, Then it sort of opened back up a little bit again. And now the economy is making everyone scared. So is it different? Like, do people have to prove in different ways that they've got it figured out? Or do they have to show you something that they haven't had to in the past, like being profitable? All the things that people sort of got to pass on for a little while.
0: Yeah, I think founders are being asked to show more profitability or a clear path to it. That's definitely of emphasis now because of those changes that you mentioned. And I think founders are also being asked to show that they can run very lean and be very cash efficient. I don't think that's going to go anywhere. And I think good investors keep that through cycles and don't get caught in the hype wave where it's all about growth, growth, growth. There's kind of this high school popularity contest in BC. And so I'm hoping that as a group, we can kind of hold the line there because those are good businesses and those are good business fundamentals. And we can't lose sight of that depending on where the cycle is. Now, from a fundraising perspective, I think it'll be a challenge. We've kind of already alluded to that. However, I do think that there's not a lot of people bringing mechanisms like this to the market. In CPG, I know there's not. And in Regen ag, I know there's not. Mm -hmm. And I know that there's large swaths of investors that care about both of those topics. So I feel like we can put something in front of them that is pretty dynamic and pretty influential.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Do you have, I mean, you've been doing this for, you know, a little bit of time and you're still in the early stage yourself, but do you have any, I always love to ask for advice, either for founders, people who are trying to get money or raise capital, or also people who are trying to do what you're doing, like start a fund and make a difference.
0: Yeah. I think one thing I've been sitting with is how do you use existing structures that are proven and can provide credibility and stability, but also still innovate enough to do something different and to really add value. And that's a real tension point. I don't know how we're going to do that, but we have to, right? If we're just the same old CPG seed stage VC, like this thing's not going to work. It's not going to have the impact that it's supposed to have. And so my advice would be for anyone is don't run away from that tension. Don't run away from the tension of trying to stretch yourself a little bit, because It would be super easy for me in the regenerative agriculture sphere to just say, I'm an investor, I'm gonna throw all my money in farmland. It's a great inflation hedge. It has consistent returns. We're gonna just do corn and soybeans in the Midwest and we're gonna throw some cover crops on there. We're gonna stop tilling. But those are supplemental changes and they need to be saluted. They're amazing. I I cannot support them enough, but that's not gonna bring transformation to our food system. And what we don't need is more sustainable Doritos. We need total transformative solutions. And this is a mechanism that I think can do that. And that's why I'm running in this direction, because we need to do it.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you think there are any countries outside of here that are doing what you're talking about already in a really good way? Like, are there, is there anybody who's, who you could model this after?
0: Yeah, I would say different countries have different strengths in terms of agriculture. And I'm, I'm not an expert across the board. Like I know in terms of regenerative grazing, like Australia and New Zealand are way ahead of us because of the climate and because of some of the government interventions and ecosystem services. So there's kind of different strengths and weaknesses across the board. I don't know of anyone that has really scaled regenerative brands. I mean, in Europe, Demeter Biodynamic has really scaled and, and that's a very well-known kind of certification and a cohort of brands. So there's definitely that. I would say in other countries, it's probably less about brands and it's more about decentralized regional smallholder food systems, which is yeah. great. I just don't think that our country is set up for that. I don't see that change happening. Like Pandora's box is open. In the produce business, we only used to have strawberries when they were in grown in Florida or California. Now we have them year round because we're, we're sourcing from Mexico, we're sourcing from Central America, South America. And so That day of the mom in Naperville, Illinois, not buying blueberries every day of the year, that day is gone. And so I think you can take that across the food system and say, okay, if we know that we understand that, what's the highest good that we can do given those constraints? And I think building brands that are regenerative, that can influence consumers and help scale production and create demand for that production would be a big win for all of us.
1: Do you have a point of view about vertical farming, about people who are doing what you're talking about in trailers and inside places where there are complete climate control and complete control over every little environmental factor that there is?
0: I'm indifferent, but nuanced. And let me unpack that. So. My family sold millions and millions of dollars of indoor tomatoes, cucumbers, all these things. And I think it's great that we can grow that stuff indoors and that you can go buy it at your local grocery store and you can have a tomato. From an ecological perspective, it's not as good as growing it in soil. There's kind of like your large scale greenhouse operators and hydroponic operators that grow things in water that are treated with chemicals. And then you do have some large scale guys that still use Soil inside, and then you have local greenhouses where they're getting a seedling started, and then it's going into outdoor soil. That's obviously amazing, and I think that's an amazing tool for outdoor kind of regenerative operations. Mm-hmm. My biggest thing on the indoor side is we can't live off of herbs, lettuce, tomatoes, and cucumbers. It's awesome, right? Now some some folks are growing berries inside, and some other things, yep. but it's like those those are not sustenance. Like when you can grow meat there, and, and we shouldn't, but. Those are the key macro micronutrient foods that we need. And I just, I don't see a future where it makes sense to do that indoors from a energy perspective, from an economic perspective, from a nutrition perspective, all the things.
1: Yeah. That's so interesting. Never thought about it that way.
0: I'm not totally against it. I just, yeah. I don't think it's worth chasing like big dollars for big output. Like yeah, I think it's yeah. cool for tomatoes and cucumbers, but like, I don't think it's it's worthwhile to chase for the other stuff.
1: And what do you think about, do you know anything about this creating animal protein from? Yeah. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah. Look, I'm not a purist anti-tech person. I think food tech has a lot of promise and a lot of pitfalls. I just think it's a distraction. And it's a waste of resources that we could put into things like regenerative agriculture. Mm-hmm. But I'm super biased. I mean, I'm all aboard the regenerative agriculture bandwagon, right? And so yep, 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 I've yep. done my homework. I've done my homework on those folks and what they're up to. But I'm definitely not as educated as them. And they're definitely not as educated as I am on region X. Yep, so there's, yep, yep. there's a give and take there. I just think it's a despair paradigm. If if we go that route with food tech, we've basically admitted we've messed this thing up so bad and we can't fix it. And it's not accurate. We can fix it. We just have to have the guts. We have to shift the incentives. We have to align. We have to coalesce. We have to do all these things. Yeah. And it's going to be hard work, but I really don't think it's harder than raising billions of dollars to grow meat in laboratories. I really don't think it is, but I just fundamentally intuitively in my soul, I I don't align with it.
1: Interesting. There's so many things. I mean, there's just so much going on. In so many places, it'll be interesting to see what actually happens. But I think, and I have one more question for you. That's not, I'm just asking you questions because you know a lot (laughs) about a lot of things. And I think it's interesting. There's this whole sort of backlash now about all of these plant-based everythings that were supposed to be like the solved all the problems that we had. It was going to make us eat less meat and kill less animals and do all the things. And people have been very reluctant, I think, to like you know what's happening. I mean, mm-hmm. the stocks are crashing and people are still eating meat. They just aren't. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious if you have a point of view on that. And, and if that, I mean, that obviously plays into what you're doing, right? Because if yeah. we keep doing that, we have to find a better system to do it within.
0: Mm-hmm. Agreed. I think the plant-based movement has had some successes and some failures. Mm-hmm. I think some successes have been they have really coalesced and worked together in a disciplined militant way that other movements can learn from so kudos to them for that two i think they've opened up consumers to different ideas and they've shown consumers and put yep. into their head that hey what you eat matters and it has an environmental footprint i don't agree that it's a better environmental footprint for a lot of those products right so right. i think their intentions great and i think that what they did from that standpoint is awesome but what the actual products being hyper processed, heavy ingredients, oh, GMO, yeah. et cetera, I think we're a miss. And I've seen graphs and whatnot of like the hype curve and like they're right where they should be in terms of the big peak, now the valley, and then it will kind of stabilize. I just think if I'm a betting person, <laughs> which I am because I'm an investor,
1: yes, you uh, are. <laughs> you
0: no, know, people want to eat meat. They just want to yeah. eat good, clean meat. And part of the problem and Robbie, the CEO of Force of Nature talks about this really well. And he did it amazingly on our podcast is consumers, a lot of the times think the meat they're eating is, is good. It's good for them. It's sustainable. It's all these things. And, and so the meat industry is just as guilty of, of conning the consumers that their products are good. And a lot of people actually believe what they're doing is, is good. And we just kind of have to pull the veil off, right. And, and get truth and transparency across the board, no matter what you're kind of peddling out there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. That's awesome. Well, this is so great. I love this interview. I could ask you 7 million questions and talk to you. Maybe we'll have a follow-up at some point, but anything else you want to share before we wrap up?
0: That's a good question. I think the biggest thing that I can take away from my journey in this space and my life overall is if you want to change something or if you have an opinion and you want to really figure out if you're really bullish on it as you think you are, get your hands dirty. Mm -hmm. And I thank God every day that I worked in a 34 degree warehouse and put 50 pound potato sacks and 300 other items on produce pallets and loaded those things into trucks and helped people drive that truck to Madison, Wisconsin from Indianapolis, Indiana, unload that product, put it on the store shelves. And so I just think a lot of times in food, there's a, not a holier than thou, but kind of like a, Hey, I think I really understand the system and I've never in a day gotten under the hood. And so I just encourage people follow your curiosity and stress test your theses and, and your ideas with getting your hands dirty, because it's it's the best kind of way to learn and, and test those things out.
1: Yeah. And the theory is interesting, but it's not the same as reality, right? Mm, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much. What a great conversation. I really enjoyed every second of it.
0: Same here. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.